Hello and welcome to the 237 Film School podcast with me, Martin Law. Today my guest is screenwriter Jack Barth. His script cover version was acquired by Working Title Films and adapted by Richard Curtis into what turned out to be Yesterday, directed by Danny Boyle. Now in May 2020, Jack publicly alleged that Richard Curtis had taken credit for writing the entire film despite the fact it features several key elements contained in Barth's original scripts. Now, Jack was given a story by credit on the eventual film, along with Curtis, and Curtis himself was solely credited with writing the film's screenplay, which Jack has issues with. So we discussed that, along with his career, including writing an episode of The Simpsons called A Fish Called Selma. Jack has also written travel books and worked in British TV. He produced and wrote for the Jonathan Ross series Japanorama, as well as Badil's Syndrome, writing for David Badil. Now I reached out to Richard Curtis's agent for an interview, not only to respond to the claims, but obviously to interview him about his career. Unfortunately, he's busy at the moment, but with regards to Jack's claims, they are refuted in general and in detail. They say that Jack was well paid for his work under the terms of the perfectly reasonable contract with working title and he did receive a proper credit for his contribution. A contribution that Richard has acknowledged often and enthusiastically. I reached out to Jack because I wanted to find out a little bit more about why he decided to go public and also find out what he's up to next. So here is Jack Barth. So, Jack, you flew yourself to the Tribeca Film Festival so that you'd be able to attend the premiere of yesterday. What was your initial reaction when you first watched the film? I had seen the film at a screening a little earlier and it was slightly different, but not wildly different. But um, my reaction, I'll be totally candid with you, my reaction was, wow, when I saw the credits roll, I was so glad that I had spent the money to fly over to New York to see the film and to see what they had done because basically they took my story credit and you know how in movies 99% of the time it says screenplay by somebody based on or, or story by somebody you know like back to back right in my case they had screenplay by Richard Curtis at the end of the film I wasn't at the beginning of the film I understood that but at the end of the film they had uh, directed by screenplay by and then they had all the actors and then they had all the producers and they buried me somewhere in the middle of the credits. I just thought that was, considering the film began with me, began inside my head, I just thought that was that was so disrespectful and rude. And, and I'm so glad that I saw that because I was able to get that changed because I think they felt like they'd gone a little bit too far on that one. Oh, I see. So at the Tribeca screening would be different to what I watched on Sky the other day. So they eventually did change it and the position of your credit was put forward. That's correct. Yeah, and I, that was the first time, because the previous screening I'd seen didn't have credits. So this was the first time I'd seen the, the film with credits. And when, and when you say that you got it changed, so what was the actual process of that? Like, who did you raise kind of the issue to? I sent a rare message to Richard Curtis and to get him involved because when we contacted working title, they said, no, no, that's how Danny Boyle wants it. And they, they blew me off. And at that point I hadn't yet realized just what they were going to be doing to bury me. 
but I was getting a feel, getting a, a good feeling about what was about to start happening. Other than the credit then at the time when you first saw the completed film that was going to be released, were you happy with the actual film or not? <laughs> well, it wasn't my film. I, I'm not saying that. Um, I thought it was, I, I was really surprised because I was really, I had no idea that it was going to become a Richard Curtis film because we had a very tight script. I mean, they're, you know, they're trying to downplay my script, but the truth is I worked for several years with some really good producers on that script and it was, it was very tight. You know, the reason it didn't get made wasn't because we didn't have a script. It was because it's hard to get any film made and you need, especially when you need like 20 or $30 million. So I was really surprised that he twisted a story that was really working into a kind of a template rom-com. So you tweeted the other day and you actually tweeted out your original script, which was called Cover Version. Your tweet said something along the lines of that there's a misconception that your original script, Cover Version, was a dark, gritty art film. In actual fact, it's a comedy, just not a creaky rom-com riddled with logic and story flaws. Gosh, did I say that? <laughs> is that is, I think it's still on there. So I'll it's true. Anyone with any taste knows that's true. That's what I was wondering. Because, you know, I don't know if you've seen the film Natural Born Killers, which sure. was based on an original screenplay by Quentin Tarantino. And that underwent a handful of rewrites to the point where it then became a completely different film. And he actually wanted his name off the credits completely. But I guess in your scenario... Your situation, you still want the credit, is that right? It's like a paradox, and I'm, I'm upset with what he did to my script, but at the same time, I'm also upset that he didn't give me credit for the parts of my script that he retained. And so it, it's a lot of people are thinking I'm, I'm just mad. I'm like, I, I can't, you know, nothing will please me. But the, tr the, the truth is, I thought it was really just not on to be taking credit for scenes in the film, which, I, which I've specified, the John Lennon scene, the, uh, the initial yesterday reveal, Harry Potter joke, the school teacher named Ella, Ellie, just so many, so many coincidences that are not coincidences. And I was really upset that, that, that Richard Curtis just claimed credit for everything, said that the only thing he took from me was a one-line elevator pitch. Yeah, so I've, I've read a couple of different things. So the first being that it was literally the one line that he went off, you know, that somebody wakes up and no one else can remember the Beatles, but he can. And then I also saw that he'd, he'd asked someone to send him a one page. So, I mean, a one page treatment would have a lot more information on, such as the relationship with the teacher and that kind of thing. So do you know for a fact what was sent to him or not? Oh, I actually have confirmation that that he read the script. What he's been, he's been saying has been really de de intentionally deceptive, I believe. He told everybody that he didn't read my script until after he wrote his first draft. But of course, there are many drafts of a film. And secondly, he, he actually has regaled people uh, within interviews by talking about how he finished his first draft and it was Christmas and, and he and uh, Emma had a lovely Christmas. And then right after Christmas, she told him that there were lots of problems and it needed major rewrite. So basically... That seems like the time that he read my script before he went into his major rewrite. And he's told me this. There's no question that he's read my script. That's not even that's not even an issue. It's been obfuscated with this comment about not reading it until after the first draft. But but the fact is, he will admit he actually at some point did read my script. It's funny, isn't it? Because let's say let's let's just say for, for argument's sake, he didn't read it. But surely that is a problem in itself. You know, you were somebody who's written this this script that working title obviously wanted and then he doesn't even have the decency to read it is that not an issue or is the issue obviously the fact that 
you know, you're convinced he has read it and then not admitted to reading it. When I spoke to him, Martin, he said, I, I, I read your script. He did. And then he left it hanging like he's not going to compliment it at all. He just said he read the script after he wrote his first draft. That's confirmed. I have that as a recording. I mean, he definitely said that. So that's not even an issue. If he didn't read it, though, is that not an issue in itself, you know, to not give somebody <laughs> like yourself, who, who is a writer and obviously has, has talent, to not even give your scripts? Is, you know, it's as if saying it's not worthy of being read, you know? Well, yes, I see what you're saying, but I think the bigger issue is why would he get working title to, to, to put out all that money for a script that he hadn't read? So going back to how it was eventually bought then, now I read that your first treatment was written in, in 2012. Right. And then I believe your agent had passed it on. So had the agent passed it on as a treatment or had you already started writing the screenplay at this stage? I wrote I wrote a really detailed treatment and I started on the first draft and um, Mackenzie Crook, who I've mentioned before, uh, is an old family friend and a, and a lovely guy. And I think really brilliant. And, and, and he has skills that, that I don't. I think we have complementary skills in some ways. And I asked him if he wanted to help me write a first draft of this. And he did. And, you know, and then after that and maybe a few rewrites, uh, we took it to my agent um actually used that to get an agent and then she and she liked it and then she passed it on to a pair of producers named uh, matthew wilkinson and lee brazier and they liked it and they wanted to put it into development so they took out a, a low-cost option on the script so mackenzie crook who you've mentioned there obviously he's known for the office and he's created his own comedy series and writes that very talented guy like you said his name wasn't on the draft of the cover version that I read, the one that you tweeted out. At what point does his his name come off? You know, I, I, I don't know if I can give you the year, but what happened was when we first put, when we first wrote it, we were thinking that he could play the lead role, um, which is possibly a little naive because he was I don't know late thirties and the character was maybe thirty-ish, early thirties. You know, not a huge difference. And then he he himself said, you know what, we really should get somebody kind of younger for this because it's not meant to be someone who's so past it uh, in terms of rock and roll but that we thought we both thought he'd be great for directing it he was attached as a director and we took it out there and then he had written a spec script for and a, and a pitch for the for a detectorist and the bbc really liked it and took it up and he had to suddenly go into writing six episodes planning to direct them all and to star in them all so he just said look i can't spend any you know we were still in not selling our the, the cover version so he just said look i need to to not do anything and i obviously you, you've got more development ahead you've got you know who knows when this will ever happen i want you know please you can you can take my you know you can take my name off it especially because it was mostly my idea anyway in the first place um and it was very it was very generous and at first we we're thinking well maybe we should leave it on because his name might actually attract interest but then it just became a couple more years had passed and it's just we've done a lot of rewriting and it just didn't really seem fair anymore at what point then you know how long from initially submitting it to an agent to it being essentially sold you know how long was that period for you i think we sold it in at christmas 2016 and started and I, the treatment was done in like the spring of 2012 so four and a half years roughly at that point then when you when you did sell it what did you actually think you were selling you know i mean obviously scripts are made to be 
you know, they're written to be turned into films. They're not meant to be read, you know, by Joe public. So you sold it with the intention that it was going to be made as it was? Well, it wasn't specified, of course, but I was told through my agent and through the producers that uh, Richard had a deal to make some films for working title, and he really liked the script. He didn't say the idea. He, he said that he really liked the script, and he wanted that to be one of his films. So my naive impression was that he wanted to produce that film, possibly even direct it. You know, he's he's kind of fake modest about his directing skills, but he can direct. And I, I would have been happy if he had just directed that script. But that's then it just went into a cone of silence for a year and I didn't hear anything. And that's when it emerged that he had completely rewritten it. From selling it, it was a full year to then knowing that kind of the next stages. Is that right? Yeah, because I, I'm pretty sure I've been kept in the dark about everything, but I'm pretty sure at the point we sold it, they didn't have Danny Boyle attached. That would have obviously... That would have been great, but at the same time, that would have made me think maybe I should negotiate a little tougher. Because, you know, when you've been on something for four and a half years and someone says they want to buy it and they're very powerful, you don't have a lot of leverage in the, in the negotiations. Well, interestingly, I mean, I'm running this podcast and I've been speaking to British writer directors and, and I've, I've, I've learned a lot about how much they get paid, you know, and, and then any development deals for future works. And it's not as much as Joe Public might think. So I mean, no. am I allowed to ask you how much you actually got paid to sell the script? I, I don't really think I, I feel awkward talking about it. But let me just say it wasn't like a derisively low figure. It wasn't lots of money. And when you take away the agent's commission and the lawyer and the accountant and the taxes, it's it's really not enough to live on for more than a year or two. So speaking of agents, I mean, obviously you mentioned that this script that you wrote, Cover Version, helped you get an agent, and then that agent helped you sell the scripts, which is part of their job, obviously, and they take a commission like you've mentioned. Do you think your agent protected you as much as you would have liked? Well, a lot of people online who don't really know how it works are just saying, oh, how could she have given him a deal where he got net points instead of gross points, which, of course, I'm sure you know. A first-time writer is not going to get gross points in a film. I think she did as good a job as she could have done with negotiating the script. You know, we were one thing that we were really hoping for that we kind of didn't get a good deal on is the the, the ad possible adaptation as a stage musical because I still think this is a really great idea for a stage musical. If you want to kind of work in Beatles songs, this is a very clever way to do it without it just being a Beatle bio. And they kind of really bought us hard on that. And that was like a, we came to, got to a breaking point. And so we had to let that go. I was going to ask you, actually, that obviously you sold your script. That really is selling the copyright. That's right. I'm not claiming any, I'm not claiming anybody's stolen my ideas. I'm simply claiming that they've, they've taken credit as if they'd invented it themselves. And they, it's not they, it's Richard Curtis. I guess my follow-up question to what I just said, though, was that, oh. You know, do you have permission to actually have shared your original script, which you did on Twitter the other day? Oh, I don't know. And I don't care. People ask me like, "Ooh, you know, you could get in trouble. It's like, can you imagine after all the way they've treated me so shabbily that Universal or Working Title is really going to come after me for publishing my script online? I think that would be a really bad look for them. I don't want them to to because I, I, I've already lost a lot of money on my lawyers already for this. Um but I think it would look really, really shabby for them to try. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, you know, it's one of those, isn't it, where did you have to think long and hard before releasing it? Or was it a case of actually, I want to prove that my script was really good in the first place? 
I want to, yes, the second. I, I, I really have been totally honest and transparent about this whole process, even though it makes me look like maybe a bigger loser than I really am. You know, I've had a, a pretty good writing career. I've, I've, I've gone my entire life just writing. And that's pretty good. Most people can't say that they've supported themselves without teaching or, or something. Um, so, it's, you know, it's I let myself be kind of portrayed as this kind of guy who's been, who strove for 40 years to sell a screenplay. But I had to, I have done a lot of other things. And I guess I was just willing to be completely honest. Part of being completely honest is to show them the script, you know, to not just have everyone assume it's this, it was a much more brilliant film than 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 yesterday was. Let them ju- judge for themselves. Yeah. So how long, you know, before getting the treatment out there, had, had the idea been simmering in your head? Maybe forever. It's the kind of thing I, was, I, I thought about many years ago, because, I mean, I think it's a pretty common fantasy. I'm not claiming a, you know, a copyright on the idea that. I know something that someone else doesn't know. I mean, isn't there a scene in uh, Back to the Future from 1980, was it 85, where um, Marty plays Johnny B. Good and, and, and the kids don't know it? I mean, any, any time travel movie, the, the, if it's where the person goes back to the past, they know things that the people in the past don't know. So I'm not claiming I have a, a, any kind of copyright on that. Um, but I have, I do fantas, I had fantasized about that a lot. And if you've read the story, it's the idea was that I felt through a combination of things, through the fact that things haven't worked out very well for me, and for the fact that my feeling that people don't know what's good anyway, you could, they don't know what a good script is. They just, they, they ask someone else what they think, or, or they want to know who it's coming from. You know, that was one of the shockers for me. Martin was, was the way that. Everyone says, oh, you need to get like a, a name writer on this to do a, a polish and you think, well, why can't you just trust your own judgment? Why can't you just look at the words on the page? Why do you have to put a name on it? You mentioned Back to the Future, and I think there have been a few other like small comparisons. There was a BBC sitcom called Goodnight Sweetheart where the character travels back in time. And again, he plays some songs and passes them off as his own. Was it ever a, a case of you were worried about the notion of of not as a plot device type thing. No, because it's it's not it's not that so much as the way that you deal with it, the way that you make lay the story out. And I mean, for the record, I, I feel I'm 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 totally innocent. There's I I've never I'd never heard of Goodnight Sweetheart until someone first complained about it. That was I guess that was in the '90s. I didn't even move here until 2000, and I certainly wasn't catching up on old kind of second-rate sitcoms. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the other thing. People seem to idealize that show like it was some great show. I'm sorry. Um, and there have been other things, too, like some a French film that I've never I'd never heard of until I've heard, a, you know, suddenly hearing about a lot of places that I stole it from that I've never heard of before. But I'm not claiming proprietary knowledge of something that no one else knows is a is a unique idea. I'm simply saying I didn't I wasn't influenced by any of these other things that I've, I've been accused of. And, and obviously one of the, you know, the bigger differences between cover version and yesterday is how, you know, is what happens next when he when he releases this, the, this, the music as his own. You know, in, in, in yesterday, he becomes a big star. And I think that's something you've you've kind of criticized. Yeah. I mean, and even just on a music stand from a music standpoint, from a pop cultural standpoint, I think Richard Curtis thinks, Oh, the Beatles were so great that those songs would be huge hits today. And I think that's actually insulting to the Beatles because 
what they were about wasn't just their songwriting. It wasn't their performing. It was their personalities. It was the whole, their senses of humor. You know, the, 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 they, were, they were just the right people at the right time. And there was it was the right era as well. It was so many things that came together for them that it, to, to just say it was the songs, even though someone else could cover it. I mean, have you heard a lot of cover versions of Beatles songs? Very few of them are as good as the Beatles versions. At what point then did you realize that the plot was changing to that avenue i had gotten a copy of richard's version in early 2019 this is like a few months before they started filming and i i was i was really surprised to see that they turned it into a rom-com and with some kind of weird unrequited love from the past sort of plot that kind of takes away from the actual theme of the of the film when you received that script i mean was that normal for your kind of deal to be able to at least read the script before the film came out or was that no, something I think you that was a that was a rare courtesy um so yeah because we we had a conversation I, richard kind of was sounding me out this is in early 2019 a few months before they went to production and in rec- at the time i thought oh that's nice he just wants to make sure i'm cool with this and in retrospect i realized he was kind of possibly sounding me out to see if he could get away with just taking credit for everything so based on the fact that you've obviously, you know, you've, you've voiced your opinion, shall we say, of, of the finished film, if you did have the credit of written by Jack Barth and Richard Curtis, or however you personally would prefer it, would you still be as critical of the film? Or, you know, some, some might say that your criticisms of the film are, are stemming from the credit situation. Right. Well, I probably it would probably be a bit churlish for me to criticize a film that, that, where I got a proper credit. Um, so I think at the time, and I certainly didn't criticize the film at the time because I, you know, I, I wanted the film to do well because naively I thought if the film does well, I'll make more money. But, um, I haven't actually made a penny from this because I was, I was unaware of the situation, uh, with the Writers Guild of Britain compared to the Writers Guild of, of America, which is something I think your listeners might be interested in, um, is the, is the, the subject of residuals. Are you aware of residuals, uh, Martin? Yeah, so I have read um, a contract for a script and I, I did I was, you know, quite shocked to see all the different things that you can make further money on. So, for example, if it went to a sequel, I mean, is that something that you if, if they made a sequel? I mean, I'm not sure how that would ever work, but was that something in your contract? It had something in there, but it doesn't really seem like a sequelable film. Now, by residuals, I mean, in America, with the Writers Guild of America, you get money every time a TV show gets shown, a ticket gets sold for a movie, every time a soundtrack is played. I mean, it's incredible. You you, you get it's pennies, but it you know it's it, it adds up and it's lovely. I mean, I wrote a Simpsons in 1995, and I'm still getting seventy dollar checks every every three months. I mean, that doesn't look a lot, but it's it's free money and it's great. And if you have a lot of these things in your past, in, if you're an American writer, you can you it could be your pension. But in, but in the UK. I, as I understand it, the Writers Guild gave up, gave away residuals back in the 90s. And I, I have no idea why. I mean, I'm, I'm getting a lot of comments on Twitter from people who complaining about the British Writers Guild, how how toothless it is. Right. I see. So essentially, you won't make any extra money now that you sold the script type thing. Literally, what you got that day is pretty much all you'll get. Right. So just going back to what I mentioned about Tarantino with Natural Born Killers. So he was so unhappy with the finished article that he asked for his name to be taken off. So I guess that's where I was leading to with the with the question where 
as long as you would have got the credit, you would have been happy because it, it could have led to future work. Is that your kind of thinking? Because obviously, as you mentioned, it's the first feature film that you've had produced. So obviously you just want it to you know, all go well and be a success financially, box office, awards, that kind of thing. Well, it's a little it's not necessarily that that clear cut. I mean, I actually think the film has, is, is has got a certain charm to it. And, and a lot of the it's such a strong idea that a lot of it really works. There's some great stuff in there, I think. Himesh Patel is is really well cast. I mean, he would have I would have been happy to have him in my version. There's a lot of good stuff in there. It's just that I think it's a bit it's 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 got like I mean we can I can delineate the logical flaws in it if you like, but it's just got so many things that as a as a as a viewer I just make me really angry. In yesterday, there's a few more things that seem to have disappeared from the universe, such as Coca Cola, which in my opinion then detracts from that last joke. You know, it makes the last joke not very funny because we've already seen other things disappear as well. So, in yours, it was a case of the Beatles. And then right at the end, the Harry Potter joke. Exactly. And that's exactly how I feel, too. The joke isn't nearly as strong at the end because you've seen all these other things disappear. I'll be honest with you. I didn't actually realize that it wasn't a totally original Richard Curtis film. So when it was being advertised, you know, it was just plugged as being Richard Curtis, Danny Boyle. I had no idea about yourself and your original script. It is very interesting, though, that I think you were 62 years old when you sold the script, which naturally is. Well, when it got made, I'm not quite that old. I, it was 62 when the, when the film actually came out. Oh, I see. 62 when, when it when yeah. it came out. So that is in film terms, I guess. You, you must be one of the older people to have had your first film made at that age. So I think you've said yourself that you thought that they might go down that avenue of when they're promoting the film. You know, you could go on to... Lorraine and all these different TV shows and be interviewed and stuff. Would, <laughs> right. would that have been something you would have liked? Inspiration for the old folks. Absolutely. In fact, I don't think it's even close. The, the next oldest first time screenwriter was someone, mm-hmm. oh, I was, it's like Dashiell Hammett or somebody um, in adapting one of his own books. Uh, and he was 53. So this is, you know, this isn't even close. I can't find anybody older than that who's, who's, who had their first film made at, the, at my age. And I think Richard Curtis is around the same age, like 62, 63. So does it make it harder to digest the fact that this has happened? Yeah. And, and of course, his image um, is certainly not one of somebody who is a, it would do something like this to somebody else. The fact that, you, you, you know, the fact that you're obviously unhappy with your experience, do you think then that for, for younger people, you know, someone who's 21, 22 might have an amazing script trying to sell it? Do you worry about what will happen to them? Do you think this is clearly something that's happened before? Oh, I've just, again, messages I've received since since I came out on this, it's hap- it happens all the time. I mean, powerful people just take over and put their names on things. And pe- people who have, people real, a lot of people, writers, young writers, new writers realize that it's either their way or the highway. It's the, they, if, 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 you, if you don't get Idris Elba to make your film, or play, then it's not going to get made. And so you give in. And obviously, as you mentioned, you've, you know, you've had a long career actually writing. That's what you've done for your whole life. And you did write an episode of The Simpsons called A Fish Called Selma, which I'd like to talk about now. So in the little bio that I read of you, you knew the producer and you were able to pitch ideas for The Simpsons. And I believe that you actually had pitched 128 before then this particular script was was made is that right that's yeah that's actually not a real shocking number if you think this was 
season seven. So they had already done about 150 episodes at that point. They had a couple couple seasons worth already up on the board in, in index cards. They've had loads of ideas. So you have to you have to understand that so many of the ideas have been thought of already. So 128 that's a, that's a high number. But it's it's in a limited universe, and they're you know with a, a, a core of brilliant writers. So it's actually not that surprising. I, in fact, I bet there have been people who've, who've had to pitch even more ideas before selling one to, for that show. And and what exactly was it that you had to submit? Was it like a one page, or were they full scripts that you submitted? Actually, for that case, I actually went in and just sat down with a, a, a several of the writers there, and they're talking about things they might want to do and. They, you know, what what could what could I come up with that would be different than the things that they already had on the boards? And so, one thing I thought I was a, a way to get get in there was to do a, a, um, an episode featuring a character who was an interesting character who had some who had some play in him, but also hadn't had his own episode yet. And that was Troy McClure. I was going to say that I was pretty sure that that was his first kind of centric episode. So that was your idea to f- focus an, an episode on him. Right, which is also tough because around the writers' room of The Simpsons, Homer is their comedy gold. They call it like you can just always go to him and always get great jokes. And this one, we had to really crowbar Homer into there because it wasn't really a story about Homer. And there's a, a running joke in in that episode about Troy McClure having some some sort of fetish for fish. Was that was that your idea? Where did that come from? That, that's one. I'll, I'll tell you honestly, most of the great gags in that. The, uh, the the kind of really beloved Planet of the Apes musical came from the writers' uh, table. It, it wasn't they weren't in my script. And I it, you know I feel bad about that. Although most writers who've written for The Simpsons will tell you the same that it's just the table is just so brilliant that they just punch they really can punch up a uh, an okay script as long as you have a good structure and they can really do something with it. And that's what happened there. Um, as far as the fish fetish goes, we wanted it to be some kind of like offbeat fetish and I, it's even possible that they, they asked James L. Brooks um, if he had any ideas and he just kind of said fish fetish and you know when, when he says something you kind of take it seriously and I think that may be where it actually ultimately came from. So what percentage of that episode if you could round up to a you know a percentage would you say was your original script? Frankly I, I, I it probably wasn't that high I mean I'm really not going to take false credit Especially in terms of, for me, I would say what percentage of the really great gags were mine. And that would be low because th- there's some great gags in that script that aren't mine. Absolutely. Um, so I'm not going to, I can't, I can't, I, in fact, hopefully most Simpsons writers would say the same. I really can't take credit for a preponderance of that, of that script. So it was mainly just kind of the scenarios, the scene ideas that you, you'd come up with. Yeah. And I am, you know, I'm a film school graduate. I'm pretty good with structure. I can get you kind of through a story. And I think most of my structure remained intact. I had something else instead of the Planet of the Apes. I think it was Troy appearing as doing a cameo on Friends or something. But it was, God, it was awful compared to how great the Planet of the Apes was. So with that particular episode, you are credited as in full written by Jack Barth. Now, obviously, on any TV shows, they've got staff writers, they've got different types of writers that do get credited elsewhere in the script but as far as the written by it was it was completely your name so even though in in reality you're saying that the percentage was quite low the fact that you were still credited is what means something to you yeah but i mean at the same time 
anyone who knows The Simpsons knows that the, the credited writer is is just basically the person who came up with the first draft and kind of ushered it through. Um, whereas so many of the great things in there are are written by the table. I mean, they wouldn't have like 12 to 18 super funny men and women for nothing. That they're there to to just hit everything with a funny stick. I mean, I think Ricky Gervais had a similar experience with his with his first uh, Simpsons script, where he just he just also credits the the table guys and gals with making his his uh, script so much funnier as well. And and obviously after that was produced and became an episode had you pitched more you know was there any reason why you've not been able to write another episode of the simpsons oh that's a that's a long story for another day martin um obviously it would it, it would have been but i i was at the time kind of not i was kind of traveling between here and and uh, la and new york and writing i was working on a book and so it, it i wasn't really there i wasn't really present to, to maybe to cash in on it. And at the same time, maybe they didn't want to bring me aboard. Maybe they had some new Harvard Lampoon graduates coming in that they needed to find jobs for. And just going back to film, I, I, again, I read, I'm not sure if this is true, but you'd, you've written at least now 25 feature scripts. Something like that, which isn't all that many. That's less than one per year. In terms of trying to get those made, have, have, you, have those ever come close? There was a, a British producer named David Putnam Sir David Putnam, I think, who was the head of Columbia. And under him, he had these deals with producers. And one of the producers he had a deal with wanted to make a film based on a script that I'd co-written with a couple of pals called Escape from Hell. And just as, just before we, were conclu- we concluded the deal, like I think literally it was a day before, um, Sir David Putnam got canned and all his, all his deals got uh, put in the trash. Would you say then that's quite a regular occurrence from other writers you might know is it something that maybe my listeners need to be ready for that you know deals are dangled maybe in front of them and then there's no real guarantee until literally you get that paycheck or whatever the case may yeah, be you absolutely have to have that mindset that it could all fall apart um in fact i'm kind of this just turned me off not not so much what happened with richard curtis but just the whole experience of just dragging out over years with a, with a script that i think is pretty great that I, I really more focus now on on TV and streaming series. I've been, my latest pitches have been for that because I just think launching a feature film these days is really hard. It's probably going to get even harder now that now that um some of the studios like Universal are threatening to no longer put their films into into cinemas. And the article that I obviously came across last week from Uprox. Obviously, I'm happy with the article because it's it it puts me in a good light, or at least it puts other people in not such a good light but i think it's a really brilliantly written article i think there's a lot of meat to it for i think i would highly recommend people to read that to get a sense of what it's like to be a writer in modern day in the hot the modern day movie scape um because it touches on a lot of themes and also as you may as i'm sure you know it's very rare for somebody to come out and be so forthright about his experience most people just cower and hope that it goes better next time for them one of your main kind of issues, I guess, is the fact that when you now try and get a producer or something for a future project and you and you claim that yesterday, you, you know, you came up with this story for yesterday, a lot of people will dismiss it and be like, no, you didn't. Richard Curtis did. So is that why that the credit issue is the is the biggest thing? If it was a, if it was a written by and both your names were there, do you think that would have more clout for you getting future work? 
Of course it would. The, the movie is made over $200 million in, in box office and streaming and, and DVDs, etc. I mean, well over, I think, it, when, when all is done and said and done. So, of course, to be, you know, to, to be successful like that on that level is, is, is really helpful to a writer's career. And I don't have that now. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm not just whining. This really is what's happened to me. I, I, I've been looking for a new agent and I wouldn't even, I mean, I, first line, I'm the creator of the film yesterday, which, you know, made over $150 million at the box office last year. And you'd think that would be enough to get an agent to reply, but I've had, I had like no replies um, for such a long time that you just think, wow, they're just thinking I'm delusional, that I'm just like, I wrote Citizen Kane and I directed Potemkin. You know, it's like that's really what it feels like they think I'm doing. Your relationship with Richard Curtis, you mentioned that you've had some correspondence via email over the course of this whole thing. Uh, have you literally got his email address? Is in you could just contact him and say whatever you like and and whatever. I mean, he, I guess, I guess, I guess he is somebody that could potentially get you future work. But it goes back to that <laughs> <Not> now. <laughs> maybe not so much now, but I guess it goes back to what I asked right near the start, where I mentioned about Richard Curtis saying he hadn't even read your scripts. And I guess for me, if some if somebody was saying that they hadn't even read it, that would be more of an insult in a way than them stealing <laughs> ideas because it's like, well, actually have the decency to read it and, and be able to see that I'm a good writer, you know? Right. Although I, I understand what you're saying, Martin, but again, I have to stress there's no ch- possibility whatsoever that he hasn't read my script. And in terms of your contact with him, is that something you've had directly or has it always been through an agent? Uh, the only time I ever contacted him, well, two times he wrote me once, as I mentioned in the article, um, the day after an Australian writer was claiming that we stole his idea, and he wrote me this very kind of formally worded letter saying, I just wanted to say thanks for coming up with that great idea, which is all yours, 100% yours. <laughs> well, I'm sure his, his lawyer was blank copied on that email. Um, so that was the only time he'd ever contacted me unsolicited. And then I wrote to him, the only time I ever I wrote to him unsolicited was regarding the credit issue on the screening of the at Tribeca. So that was a direct email to him. Yeah, I had nothing to lose at that point. I guess my follow-up would be, you've got his email address. Are you not tempted to email him again? You know what, Martin? It's it's very naive to think, oh, if I just ask them, look, they'll they'll want to hear my ideas because they had. I saw the as I said, I saw the script working title in December twenty sixteen, and three and a half years later, nobody from working title. Not Richard Curtis, not Universal, no producers, nobody has said to me, hey, have you got any other ideas? So clearly they're either ashamed of the way they've treated me or they're just trying to pretend I don't exist. So I I really had nothing to lose by coming out and making Richard Curtis be not my friend. And obviously your protagonist in cover version is called Dan. And in the film, which you mentioned Himesh Patel plays Jack. So... The fact that the character's called Jack and you're called Jack, was that something that made you think, oh, is that deliberate or or did you just... I, I actually don't know one way or another. I, I think maybe he just likes the name. I, I just I just put the two and two together and thought, I wonder if that right. is deliberate or, you know. Yeah. I'm more suspicious that his girlfriend's name in his movie is Ellie and in my, is, is, is a school teacher named Ellie and in mine is a school teacher named Ella. Kind of similar. 
Yeah, and I think you've, you've also mentioned that the scene where he plays Yesterday. Now, I know obviously Yesterday is the most covered song, so that's, you know, that possibly is the, the same idea to that's the song that he performs and that they all say, no, I've not heard of it. But I think word for word, one of the supporting characters says something like, we don't all have an encyclopedic knowledge like you. And I thought it was the same in both. Well spotted, yes. So there, there definitely are some similarities. I mean, it's interesting because obviously comedians and, and other, other artists and things have, have been accused of stealing jokes and different things. I guess the John Lennon meeting is an interesting one because off the cuff, straight away, you'd think, right, they're in both. It must have, you know, he must have read it in yours. But do you, know, do you think that there is any chance at all that when someone is writing a script about a world without the Beatles, the idea might have come into his head that, well, the Beatles don't exist, but maybe this person, you know, John Lennon's still alive. It'll go to see him. Do you not think that there is a chance that that is just coincidence? I think that's the most implausible, inverted commas, coincidence of all of them, because I think it's really unlikely you would make John Lennon a lonely fisherman living by the sea. It's just it's just really not likely. I mean, I know how I got the idea, but he's never his idea. He just all I've ever read about is just he's a genius and he came up with this idea. Whereas I can tell you specifically, I made him a fisherman because in a famous Rolling Stone interview in 1970 ish, he said, of course, I could be a fisherman, but I but I but I but I can't because I'm a fucking genius. Sorry. Sorry to swear. Um, But that's what he said. Am I right in thinking that you've got some mutual friends with Richard Curtis as well. So obviously you've worked in UK television. You've produced shows for Jonathan Ross. I don't know if they're friendly or not. I, I, I don't, don't know. I guess so all celebrities at a certain level are, are either friendly or will wink at each other when they see each other. But then also on Twitter, I noticed David Baddiel wrote something and, he, and he, he said that he knows you and that he also knows Richard. So I was just wondering, because again, like you just said there, celebrities do like to always claim that they know each other and that kind of thing. But do you are you friends with David Baddiel? And um, not lately. I worked on his sitcom many years ago for Sky called The Baddiel Syndrome. I was one of his table writers. This was like in the late 90s. Um, and I'm actually I haven't seen either of them in a long time, but I was pretty good friends with uh, his partner, Morwenna Banks, who is brilliant and lovely. Again, I, I guess I was thinking of like extras, you know, Ricky Gervais and Jonathan Ross is an episode where they're friendly. And I always just thought, well, Jonathan Ross is bound to know at least, um, you know, Richard Curtis. And obviously, if you worked on his shows in the 90s and early noughties, I mean, are, are you friends with Jonathan Ross? It's, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm getting towards the fact that you you do know some people in a similar, you know, they're all, you're all in the same industry and in that surely other people should have spoken out or or at least protected you in a way. I, d- I don't know. Uh, there's there's some backstory there that's prob- I probably shouldn't go into, but let's just say that Jonathan didn't want to get involved. What's your career now then? What what do you do on a on a daily basis? Um, I've, I've actually had some great uh, ideas over the past year or two that I've written, um, but I'm just only just now getting them out there. I've had I've had producers actually approach me since this happened who felt bad for me because they. They themselves or friends of theirs had exactly the same thing happen to them. Um, I won't go into specifics. That's for a, for an investigative journalist to do. But um, they've they've invited me to pitch, and so I'm pitching to them. And um, and an agent has even um, contacted me, or maybe I contacted her. And we're seeing if maybe she might be able to 
send my my stuff out there that which would be great so this is this has only been good for me i urge all other writers who've been screwed over and feel they've got nowhere else to turn to do the same thing and telling what the business is really like and obviously it is interesting for younger people who are trying to break into that business so just to final you know finally and to sum up what you know what would your advice be to anybody listening who might be studying a screenwriting degree or you know anyone who just loves to write and has ambitions to sell their script well you can't do anything without an agent because producers won't read stuff that they haven't solicited that hasn't come from an agent because they're too worried about being accused of stealing ideas um and i actually don't believe that that goes on all that often because it's easier just to buy an idea than to steal it but you have to get an agent and how to do that i don't know it seems like it's a world more than most where it's all about personal contacts and if there's if I you know my biggest flaw is that I'm really not very good at that playing the contact meeting people pushing myself on people kind of game I'm actually terrible at that I feel really cringy about putting myself forward and that's for a writer that's in the modern world that's death you know they don't have like a studio system where you can just go and work at a studio and get a salary you have to be out there selling yourselves all the time Jack Barth, thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Martin.